Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So thanks to everybody's fantastic support, um, the pollsters were off to the races, sort of literally, sort of figuratively. We've had, uh, as folks have heard, um, lots of new downloads been written up and curated in a lot of different lists of top political podcasts, of which there are now tons, lots of new announcements of new political podcasts in the last couple of weeks. Um, and uh, in the last couple of weeks, Kristen has been crushing it on broadcast, which is pretty cool. Where have you been on broadcast? Uh, I get to go on Good Morning America for the very first time. Did you like cook something or like make? <laughs> that would be- no, <laughs> I, like unfortunately, or- I didn't even get to go to New York City because it was sort of a last minute thing and teleportation does not exist yet. But one of these days, I want to get up there and like hang out with Robin Roberts and that'd be fun. But I did discover that political punditry on morning show TV is just a little different than it is on cable because it's much more broad brushstrokes. Like Cruz did a good job. I think Kasich maybe didn't. Right, right, right. The end. No, yeah. I mean, that, I'm, I'm like oversimplifying it. But so it's... no discussion of like IVR versus online versus. No, no one was asking me about the VAT tax that Cruz may or may not support. Right. <laughs> that was not the topic. But yeah, I got to, got to go on GMA. So that was pretty cool. That's cool. And um, I visited the liberal mothership of NPR, which is like, it really is. It's like everything you want NPR to be as a person on the left, like free range eggs in the cafeteria and like a really really big sign that says lactation office is so great lactation room this way like it's very like beautiful palace it's a beautiful palace and um in fact this health the snacks are so healthy at npr that a friend of mine who works there had a um she like sold candy bars because you couldn't get junk food at the npr office (laughs) she's running the black market on like carbs yes and but of course i think it was like an honor system like i don't think of course like i don't think you like there was really strict rules i don't know i I don't think i'm telling secrets here because i think they covered it about themselves or it was covered somewhere else so the contraband yeah m&m's drawer because you can only get like kale smoothies and free range eggs at the npr building so anyway that's so i really i'm a fan of going to npr and i was linked in by naomi wolf which is a completely ridiculous humble brag <laughs> but no na- celebrate it naomi own wolf it, own it. who sort of like wrote the big blockbuster feminist book of the early 90s when i was in college sort of like cheryl sandberg's lean in um imagine if cheryl sandberg was not 
in social media, but from just dipping her toe in social media and Facebook requested, you know, gave you a Facebook message like 20 years from now. But I wrote back to her and got nothing. So I'm sort of like, you know, how I have like car salesmen as like LinkedIn connections. I'm kind of like that to Naomi. <laughs> Naomi Wolf, I think. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, that's what was going on with us this week. And a lot of that is really, you know, thanks to folks who've been tweeting out recommendations for the show. And uh, your micro assignment again this week is to suggest, uh, write us with questions that you may have for our Polling 101, that uh, explainer evergreen episode that we're working on. And this week, uh, before we dive into the top lines, instead of a number of the week, we are doing the pollsters of the week. And this week, the pollsters of the week are Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. (laughs) And why are they pollsters of the week? Uh, So they are pollsters of the week because they talked about polls in the debates, which is supremely ironic because they're both the candidates that are like, I don't do polls. Yes, I know. They both say. I mean, even though we've had Bernie Sanders pollster on the show. Yes. But you get what we're saying. Right. They still ultimately aren't, you know, it's that dichotomy of saying, like, I don't believe in polls. I don't need polls. I don't, you know, I just care what the people think or I just say what I believe, which is one thing they both have in common. Um, But at the same time, talking about your polls in a debate, I mean, that is the epitome of what you a pollster would advise a candidate to not do you know don't talk about process don't talk about campaign process don't talk about your fundraising don't talk about your yard signs don't talk about your polls don't talk about you know when you're going to cut your next ad leave that to other people you got plenty of other people around you who can talk about that stuff leave the polls out of it and you know we're teasing them i mean part of it is not so much them per se it's this you know the new coverage of polling overall that has made everybody want to talk about polls and also the nature of these, you know, of the debate questions. I mean, you've, you've seen a lot of debate questions about polls, too. So it's not just that they volunteered <laughs> I, I poll strategy. I wish that the debate moderators would not ask about polls. Like, leave that to us. Let them actually answer questions about, like, what they would do to fix America. Yes. Leave the polling questions to us. Yes. Uh, but I, I will say one other fun anecdote about Donald Trump. So in the wonderful world of punditry now, uh, it's either a badge of honor or shame if Donald Trump tweets about you. He is very fond of – it appears that he just sits around and watches a lot of television news and offers his commentary on like, you know, congratulations, Katie Pavlich on Fox – great appearance. And like, I like Katie, you know, she's, you know, she's like a very conservative commentator on Fox. And so occasionally, you know, if she goes on and says something that Trump likes, he'll be like, oh, good job, Katie, like with her Twitter handle. Or he'll hate on you. Like my Maria Cardona, for example, my style icon. Style icon Maria Cardona? He sent her some hate tweets after one of her CNN appearances. Oh, I told Maria that you keep, that you're always, that she's your style icon. (laughs) I saw, I encountered her in person and was like, you need to listen to the show because we talk about you a lot. And that's the title we give you. Uh, But then, you know, there are other pundits, you know, even on the right, like Mary Catherine Ham, who I adore, you know, she has been on the receiving end. So I'm always waiting for like that moment that I do a hit and I say what I'm thinking and like I get the nasty tweet from Trump. Hasn't happened yet, but Trump this weekend did give praise to another guest on the Gutfeld show, which is on Fox. It's like at like 10 p.m. on the weekends. I went up to New York to do this show. I guess it's like Fox News's version of The Daily Show-ish, mm-hmm. something like that. Had never been on before. But now I'm like, ah, Trump saw me, but he did not offer Twitter praise nor Twitter hate. So the the quest continues, Margie. One of these days, he's going to tweet at us about the show. 
Maybe wait. he'll tweet at one of us. It's I'm gonna provoke it. This needs to happen. Well, we just I read Art of the Deal. Him. This is what he would. This is what his advice says. Like trying to provoke public conflict. That's right. That's right. Are we part of the problem though? Or are we part of the solution? I'm I don't know. fine being a part of this problem. <laughs> I'm fine with it. I'll so, sleep very well tonight. So what are the other top lines? So the week? other top lines this week, uh, the you may have heard that Sarah Palin made a big announcement this I, week. I did hear that. And I'm fact. here to tell you that the lamestream media is finally keeping up with what's going on in the polls on the Democratic side. Polls are still feeling the burn. Media's catching up. We will discuss. Um, but we'll also talk a little bit about what's going on the on the Republican side. Uh, lots of interesting polls going on here. In particular, we've got kind of the hottest of the hot poll fresh out the oven. Um, WBUR, which is Boston's NPR news station, has given us an embargoed copy of their survey that comes out at 5 a.m. on Thursday? Thursday? What day is today? Wednesday. Today's Wednesday as we're taping this. So it comes out on Thursday. So we're taping the show and we're going to keep the show in the can until 5.01 a.m. Yeah. So, you know. So we're talking about a poll right now that nobody has seen yet. This feels so exciting. Right. Take a lesson, other pollsters out there. You can do that, too. You know? Send us your secret awesome embargo data. We will keep it in the vault and That's hold right. our show That's if right. your poll is cool enough. And trust <laughs> us, this poll is super cool. Uh, and we'll also dig into some data. And Selzer has some info on what labels like gun owner, values voter, socialist and capitalist Iowa caucus goers love. Uh, strength, it's the language of Trump. It's also the subject of my Washington Examiner column this week. We'll dig into research that shows that liking Trump also correlates with authoritarianism. Uh, there's a UK polling recap. We'll talk about whether or not Tories just wound up being too busy to be polled in this last election. And where is it easier to be female, Silicon Valley or the Canadian cabinet? And we have an interview with 538's Carl Bialik, who we talked about on the show a few weeks ago. That's right. Tons, so fun of, stuff. tons of cool stuff. So the Democratic side, again, is kind of the hottest ticket, at least from the polling perspective. There's not as much action on the Republican side polling-wise. Obviously, there's slugfests, you know, as far as the eye can see on all sides. But in terms of polling, there's a lot more movement on the left. Um, if you look at the momentum in both Iowa and New Hampshire, it's clear that the race is narrowing. I think, you know, folks who've been watching even just a little bit of news over the last week or two have seen that. It's true in Iowa where um, where Clinton had uh, a large lead that I called Snoozeville two weeks ago. And now um, in the Huffington Post average, it's 46 Clinton, 42 Sanders. That's the average uh, on Huffington Post pollster from a variety uh, of recent polls that have shown the race anywhere from a two-digit race to, you know, something in a, uh, you know, I mean, sorry, a two-point race to a double-digit race and everything <laughs> in between. Um, and and, then, and, the, and that, that two-point race, that's the Des Moines Register bloomberg Selzer poll, right? right? So that's the one that... Gold standard. Yeah. Right. So, um, so it, you know, it obviously turnout matters a lot because folks who are newer uh, or less frequent caucus goers are going to be more likely to be Sanders supporters. So a lot of that is going to really depend on turnout. In New Hampshire, Sanders has been up there for a while. So it's not a surprise that Sanders continues to be up there. But that uh, uh, gap has jumped where... My God, the CNN poll. The C- I mean, the CNN poll is the CNN um, WMUR poll that came out last night, Tuesday night, I think, is... Um, is a set sixty thirty three. I mean, that is sixty thirty three Sanders. So that you know really shows a lot of movement. And then, but um, then ARG came out the same day showing the gap was only six. Right. So it's twenty seven 
or it's six. And if you look at the national average, and the national average, as we've said before, is a bit of a trailing indicator rather than a leading indicator because everything will scramble after the early voting states. Uh, so there you continue to see Clinton have a really sizable lead, 53 to 36, according to the Huffington Post pollster average. Um, and there have been a variety of national polls out in the last week or so. It's like everybody was waiting until after the holidays and a bunch of polls all started to come out. And, and that's what we're really seeing here. Uh, NBC Wall Street Journal, for example, had a much wider lead for Clinton, 59 to 34. But then CBS New York Times had a seven-point race, 48 to 41. And then a couple polls that came out in the last couple days, Morning Consult, Monmouth, uh, NBC Survey Monkey, their online poll, all those show Clinton over 50 and Clinton and Sanders somewhere in the 30s. So that's kind of the state of the race. But, you know, there's other stuff to look at, too, besides just the horse race. Of course, there's always something else. One is what's going on in the ads. Uh, Ace Metrics, which is well known for doing testing of corporate ads. They have a lot of corporate clients. They're kind of the industry standard. And then they regularly release uh, for press consumption, we tested all the Super Bowl ads. Here's what we found. And so they did a here. We tested all the political ads. Here's what we found. And the top ads uh, uh, the top six ads, uh, or six of the top seven ads, I should say, are Sanders ads. I should also say that my husband's on the media team for Sanders, um, and uh, which is who flagged this for me. And, <laughs> and uh, but it's also interesting looking at how this breaks out by party because that's just overall among Democrats. You see a mix of Sanders. Uh, Clinton and uh, Super PAC Prayer USA ad. So the top ad among Democrats is a Sanders ad, but then number two and three are both uh, Hillary Clinton ads uh, among independents. All of the top uh, ads are Sanders ads, except for one Jindal ad. Uh, Jindal's not in the race anymore, but his, one of his ads made it to the top among independents. Among Republicans, a completely different set of ads. There are uh, Cruz, Trump's one ad, um, the Conservative Solutions Pack. Who's pack? That's Rubio's pack. That's Rubio's pack. And what about American Legacy Pack? Uh, no, no. So another pack. <laughs> I'm, this is one of those, like, I probably should know this, but in the, the word salad of pack naming, like, I know that one is the Rubio They're not pack. trying to be remembered, by the way. That's the names. point. The point is that people like me will go, uh, I don't know. It's just they're right. just trying to educate people about issues, Marjorie. Right. They're about America's legacy. Right. But Cruz has three of the top uh, and Trump's one ad is one of the top. And then there's a couple PAC, super PACs. There's a lot more action on the super PAC side on the Republican Contest yeah. than there are, you know, than there is in the Democratic contest. So, um, so that makes that makes sense. So, and I got to say, I'm usually hugely critical of the way political ads look because I think so many of them kind of look the same a lot of the times. But the Cruz border ad, um, while I, you know, I don't necessarily know how I feel about the message. I mean, the message of it was interesting, right? It was like. And it didn't look like a political ad. It looked more like an ad that you'd see from like a, a, a corporate brand. And I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. So I was I was fascinated to see that it popped up there in that top five of, of the ads that they tested. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also in the top list and folks, we always post this stuff in our um, show notes. So people should take a look. There are two Kasich ads that make it to the top. Um, the draft Biden ad, which. Biden had nothing to do with. Biden's obviously not a candidate. So that, but that was tested too. So, um, it was so a good ad. It was a good ad. So there's, you know, so there's lots of fun stuff to take a look at there and you can watch the ads and that's all fun, uh, too. And then the last bit of stuff to look at is what happened after the Democratic debate. Um, people were talking about whether or not the Democratic debate would get a lot of 
attention. It was on a Sunday of a long weekend, but it was actually one of the top viewed debates in a while, certainly on the Democratic side. It beat a lot of uh, debates from 2012 and 2008. And uh, a lot of mixed data in terms of what the impact of that debate was. The tone was completely different from the first debate, which was all friendly and, you know, hug and kissy. But uh, the last debate was a lot more combative between the gloves are off. Um, And you saw a very similar outcome, which is you had insiders overwhelmingly feel Clinton won. Online sentiment shows that people are searching and thinking about Sanders. Um, Pundits a little bit more mixed, perhaps more mixed than they were after the first debate in terms of who won. Um, So it's hard to say what that means in terms of does that move the race? You know, what's the outcome of, of that debate? I, you know, I don't know. I guess it depends on sort of how you evaluate what a, you know, what's your measurement of success. The other data point that we have here that I think is pretty interesting is from uh, NBC Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, as as somebody from the right who's been watching this evolve, a big question you hear people talk about on the right is as Sanders really presents this strong challenge to Hillary Clinton. To what extent does she feel pressure to sort of move further leftward to capture, you know, more liberal leaning Democrats who might view her skeptically? Um, Very interesting data where they asked uh, Democratic uh, people who are registered voters who said they would vote in a Democratic primary. Would you describe Hillary Clinton as liberal, moderate or conservative? Um, And very, very minimal increases in the percentage of people saying that they view her as being very or somewhat liberal. She was viewed as very or somewhat liberal by 31 percent of voters back in June. Uh, now she's viewed by as very or somewhat liberal by 37 percent of Democratic primary voters. So a slight increase there. It doesn't look like Democrats really think she's they think she's moved a teeny bit to the left. A couple people have changed their mind. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders is viewed as li- very liberal by 41 percent of Democratic voters and another 22 percent view him as somewhat liberal. So if Hillary Clinton is trying to persuade people she is a credible progressive, she's still viewed as a moderate by 48 percent of Democratic primary voters. Yeah. And her numbers are actually quite, which we don't have here, but from what I remember, are very similar to how people res- uh, evaluate Bill Clinton and even President Obama. They're more similar to Hillary Clinton's than to Sanders. Um, And these numbers are also interesting when you think of some of the things they're having contrast over, like guns, for example, in which Sanders is seen as being more conservative on that issue. And how does that square with voters uh, with how they rate him uh, ideologically? Uh, and this is also, I think, there's a, a Des Moines Register and Selzer Bloomberg poll question. Again, we love these questions that are not just horse race questions. Um, you know, she was sort of testing out different labels. Um, you know, and what labels do Democratic caucus goers in Iowa like to apply to themselves? And I think in the light of the question of, you know, where do these candidates fall on the ideological scale or where do people put them? Uh, it was interesting to me to see that 65 percent of Democratic caucus goers consider themselves values voters. Right. Um, we have values, too. Yeah, I, I think that's that's pretty <laughs> yeah. cool because that's a term that sometimes gets thrown around, sometimes gets used as a negative term against Republicans like, oh, the values voter summit. Like, oh, isn't that just the religious right? But, you know. Values voter means a lot of is a broader term. And the fact that you have 65 percent of Democratic Iowa caucus goers calling themselves values voters, I thought was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, You also had uh, you have 43 percent who would call themselves socialist and 38 who would call themselves capitalist. On the Republican side, it's a much different story, as you might imagine. Sixty two percent of Republican Iowa caucus goers consider themselves capitalist. Only four percent consider themselves socialist. I want a focus group 
those people. <laughs> I are they know. trolling us or are they confused? I don't know. But um, I mean, these, these I mean, Donald Trump supports single payer health care and uh, a very strong. Well, anyhow, we'll get to this a little bit later, but I bet you I wouldn't be surprised if those people are all Trump voters. Uh, you know, some other things. I mean, in some ways, there are more there are some interesting similarities between Democrats and Republican caucus goers in this poll on some of these labels. Um, just as many Democratic caucus goers call themselves uh, disaffected as Republicans, about 10 percent, just as many call themselves libertarian, 20 percent of each, basically, Um Hardly any of each call themselves isolationists, uh, which is, you know, I thought a little interesting, I guess, maybe explains Rand Paul's um, Rand Paul not necessarily getting so much traction. Um, true believer. Eighty one percent of Republicans call themselves a true believer. Fifty one percent of Democrats. Um, and then the other thing that I found interesting <laughs> is this politically correct piece. You hear a lot of folks on the Republican side talk about, well, you know, this isn't pol- I don't want to be politically correct. But we're too worried about being politically correct. And. Democrats sometimes wince at the phrase politically correct. And what I found interesting was that a majority of Democrats call themselves politically correct. And actually, 25% of Republicans call themselves politically correct. One out of four. Yeah. I mean, more say they're politically incorrect, twice as many, about 40%, but still not four, not zero, call themselves politically correct. So these well, 12 these, consider themselves feminists. I know. So, you know, I think you'd be surprised. 12%, not 12 of them. Yes, right. 12%. <laughs> right. 16% of Democrats are gun enthusiasts. So I, I know we've read a lot of these, but I think it goes to show that, uh, you know, voters are a little bit more complex and nuanced than perhaps the caricature sometimes painted of them. Uh, Well, so now let's take a look at the Republican side, what's going on there. So Iowa has really congealed into this kind of two-man race. You have Donald Trump at almost 28 percent in the polling averages. You have Ted Cruz at 28 percent in the polling averages. Marco Rubio is kind of looking at a third-place finish at this point at 13 percent. And then everybody else in the polling averages is polling at five or below. Um, Or pardon me, you have Ben Carson at um, almost 8 percent, and then everybody else is at five or below. Uh, Carson's fall has been pretty pretty severe and has coincided with the uh, dramatic rise of Ted Cruz. Um, and but, but really right now, Iowa has almost become the less interesting contest because everybody kind of just assumes, well, it'll be Trump and it'll be Cruz and maybe it'll be close and we'll see what goes from there. But New Hampshire is the one where it feels like there is a lot more craziness afoot because in New Hampshire, you've got Trump that the polls consistently show is way out ahead of the pack, 29 percent. And so the battle there is really for second place. There in the polling averages, Marco Rubio's at 14 points. Um, John Kasich is at 12. Ted Cruz is at 11. Chris Christie's at 11. Jeb Bush is at eight. God, that could go anyway. I know this is it's it's New Hampshire is Definitely, in my view, the more interesting one because it's so unclear what's going to happen. And we have a couple of polls that have come out recently, ARG being one of them. Um, They released a poll after the debate that showed John Kasich in second place and not just by, you know, a point or two. It shows Trump at 27 and Kasich at 20. Within wow. within the next person is Rubio at 10. I mean, that's some huge separation if this ARG poll is correct. And as we'll get into in a second, in this WBUR poll that, again, is being released as this podcast is going to your phone. That's right. You are the first people to hear about this. That's right. Um, so WBUR did a poll um, of folks in New Hampshire, and it's just a poll of people who are registered as undeclared. So it's the independents who can choose kind of which way – 
which primary do they want to show up for? Right. And we should just pause. Every state does their voting differently. So in Iowa, obviously, they have a caucus where you go in person and, and meet and discuss. In states that have a primary, sometimes independents, you have to pick a party in order. That's a closed primary. You have to pick a party and register as that party in order to go and vote in that primary. Uh, other places, anybody can vote in any primary. In other places, undecideds can go and vote in any primary. The other folks you need to register. And so this prevents people from sort of trying to sabotage the other team by going and voting for who you want to run against all that stuff. But in New Hampshire, undecideds can vote in either contest. So that's why you have to pick one. You you, can't vote in both, but you you can pick one. You can go bounce around from year after year. So anyway, that's why this particular thing is important. What what this poll is really trying to figure out is, one, which which direction will the independents choose? Which one will the independents choose to participate in more? Do they think they want to participate more in the Democratic primary or more in the Republican primary. And what this poll found is that 35 percent of the likely but undeclared voters they spoke to said they they think they're going to participate in the Democratic. Forty four percent said they think they'll participate in the Republican. Twenty one percent said they have not made up their mind yet. And then, you know, among uh, the leaners, they sort of pushed them and they split pretty evenly. So once you include the leaners, you get about half saying they want to vote in the Republican primary, 41 percent saying Democratic and nine percent split. Um, And then they asked, you know, how sure are you about this decision that you've made? Like they're really trying to figure out who's going to change their minds. The reason why they do that is they then ask the ballot test for both parties. So everybody got asked the Democratic ballot. Everybody got asked the Republican ballot. Wow. Um, And then they sort of created these different scenarios where they say, okay, if most of the independents go to the Republican side, This is what the Democratic primary independence will look like. Mm -hmm. This is who, if there is light independent turnout on the Democratic side, we expect that Bernie Sanders will win 59 percent of the independents and Hillary Clinton will win 33 percent of the independents. If a ton of these independents instead decide, you know what, I'm not interested in this Republican contest, I'm turning out for the Democratic one. Mm -hmm. On the D side, the change isn't that big. Right. It it really who will benefit from, you know, the independents that turn out in the Democratic primary, the committed ones versus the eh ones. They're the same. They're splitting kind of the same. Huh. The Republican contest is a totally different now, story. Now, we should say these votes are just among this group, not what the total. Yes, this is not a ballot test that says Bernie Sanders is beating Hillary Clinton by X number of points. This just says among undecided or pardon me, declared voters in New Hampshire. Um, whether a ton turnout or very few turnout, that does not at this moment appear to influence how the independents will break. It's right. not like on the Republican side, propensity to participate in or not participate in the Republican primary does seem to make a big difference among these undeclared voters. So if a ton of independents decide to participate in the Republican side, in Iowa, the conventional wisdom is that if all of these new people show up, that Trump. that helps Trump. Right. It, that may not be the case in New Hampshire. So in New Hampshire, if you have light turnout on the Republican side, if most independents go, I'm going to participate in the Democratic primary, then actually Trump does pretty well. Trump wins 29 percent um, of of the undeclareds, uh, with then Ted Cruz coming in second at 16 percent and John Kasich coming in at 14 percent. So if most independents say, forget this Republican contest, I'm out. It benefits the same type of people that do well in Iowa. But if all of these independents say, I want to participate and influence this process, you see a whole different situation. And you see Kasich 
jumping up to 19 percent among these independents with Trump at 20. I mean, again, like one point back. Mm -hmm. This is not an overall ballot number. This is just among the undeclareds. But the fact that, you know, juicing independent turnout seems to help Kasich so much is a really, really fascinating story, I think, for me. And so maybe there is Kasich momentum. Maybe it's happening. Maybe he is going to be the guy that gets second place. If so, I think this poll suggests in that scenario, you'd have pretty heavy – you'd have seven out of ten undeclareds participating in the Republican versus Democratic primary, and they would be the ones really handing this contest well, to Kasich, so, I mean, Kasich or at least is, second place. Well, so – because Kasich probably getting a lot of voters that were initially supposed to be Jeb Bush voters, right? They're probably going to Kasich. It has Bush to – with heavier turnout. Yeah, Jeb Bush does slightly better. Um, I mean, Kasich goes from 14 to 19. Jeb goes from 8 to 13. So in both cases, they they go up by mm-hmm. five points. Um, you know, Cruz falls by four. Trump falls by nine. So the higher the higher turnout among undeclareds in the Republican primary, the better these more moderate-ish candidates do. The establishment lane, Which, as it's called. Yeah, so oddly enough, the establishment lane in Iowa is – kind of hoping for lower turnout, and they're in New Hampshire hoping for higher turnout, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm interpreting this correctly, which wow, I hope I am. So anyhow, exciting. this is a pretty cool poll. I don't think uh, I've seen a poll of just this group I know, before I haven't, that models it this way, so that's cool. I haven't either. I love And I love the idea of concocting multiple outcome scenarios. I think so often we look at a poll and we look at the horse race numbers and we say, well, that's truth or it's not truth. Like if that's correct or it's incorrect. And I, I think looking at these polls kind of probabilistically and saying, look, we think the most likely scenario is 41 percent Democratic primary, 59 percent Republican primary. And so we think this is what the independents will look like. But it could be. We don't know. A totally different, you know. And they just, don't know. They don't know. And so offering all of those scenarios, I think, is pretty cool. I mean, this goes back to some of the things we've heard from all of our f- fantastic guests. Scott Keeter, you know, we talked about this last week. That you're ask, you're trying to measure a population that actually doesn't exist yet. We don't know what the actual universe of voters is yet. And so you're just trying to ask people based on, you know, something they don't know quite the answer to. And also what, what Scott found and what we've seen in some of these other conversations we had is that that voter turnout is more than necessarily people changing their minds. Really getting that turnout piece locked down is so crucial to figuring out what's happening. And, you know, Chuck Todd said in his interview, like more outlets should release different turnout models to help us figure out what's going to happen. So back to this Trump question briefly before we move on from 2016. So this week I wrote my column um, all about how Trump is really more about strength versus weakness than he is anything ideological. As we've talked about on the show before, he does not actually do as well among very conservative voters, that he gets a lot of his support from somewhat conservative, moderate and liberal Republican caucus goers, primary voters, that it's not – even though you think of Trump as like this extreme candidate, he's not pulling his support from the ideological extremes of the party, that instead uh, it, there's something different going on. So I wrote my whole column about how he's he's very strength-focused. You had the, the little girls do that performance, the Trump girls thing. Oh, yes, thing. yes. Um, I saw are, we gonna get, are we going to get uh, a, a Bernie Sanders girl? <laughs> <laughs> not my, not my department. Not, but, um, not your department. Probably. I, I don't know. If you know, like, does does Lucy have like a dress that, like no. a little, like a Bernie Sanders? She did ask some question last night while she was watching the news with us, like that showed that she was trying to piece it all together, but hadn't quite figured it out. Something like, is Hillary Clinton still going to be in the movie if she moves to Iowa? And we're like. <laughs> 
I think that's a good question. We're not quite sure what it means, but it sounds like it sounds like you're trying to figure it out. You know, she is four. Yeah, she doesn't quite understand. Uh, that is a very perceptive question. That's like that, that's actually really good. Yeah. Um, but you know, this this song that these little girls sing at this Trump rally, the lyrics are kind of amazing. They start off with like, "Cowardice? Are you serious?" <laughs> Apologies for freedom. I can't handle this. I'm, Margie, I can do the whole song. But then the last line, which is amazing, and I almost want to make it my Twitter bio, is deal from strength or get crushed every time. <laughs> like these little girls in these froofy dresses singing like deal from strength or get crushed every time. Oh my God. It's so great. Or terrifying, depending on your perspective. What if there was like a companion like TLC show about like following those girls around, you know? I, I have to imagine that that's part of the impetus for whatever adult <laughs> wrote these lyrics, because let's be clear, that's what happened. Um, but anyhow, you know, the song is not about like conservatism. It's about like deal from strength or get crushed every time. And, you know, when he was cu- pushing back against Nikki Haley's criticism of him last week, he said, well, she's weak on immigration, right? Not she's wrong, not she's moderate. She's weak. I'm strong on immigration. She's weak on immigration. You know, this this is the language he uses. And so research has now shown that authoritarianism predicts Trump support more than any other indicator. Yeah. So this was a piece that was in Politico written by a friend of mine who I've worked with before, Matt McWilliams. And uh, it is the most popular thing we've ever posted on our pollsters Facebook feed, even more popular than Man Sneaks Into Lunt's Focus Group, which was pretty darn popular. <laughs> more popular certainly than any like anything else we would have uh, we've ever posted. So this had like over two thousand people watched, you know, looked at it, and and uh, it's gotten a lot of action on on uh, my side of the aisle. And I asked him, well, how is this defined? How do you define authoritarianism? I mean, he found in his study that this was a the single best predictor of Trump support, more than age income, socioeconomic status, gender, anything else. A lot of these things that you see discussed frequently in other reports that we've talked about before. And so I said, how is this measured? And there's actually a literature around, an academic literature around authoritarianism. And the word authoritarian sounds like it's a viewpoint about what kind of government you want. But really, the question is really much more personal. Mm-hmm. And it asks about what kind of traits do you think you'd like to see for children? And it had different pairs. Do you like this more or this more? And the pairs were things like um, respect for elders uh, versus independence or good manners versus curiosity or obedience versus self-reliance. Uh, well-behaved versus being considerate. And so if you were on the, like, quote-unquote, tougher versions of all of that, like respect for elders, good manners, being well-behaved, then you the, that index of all those questions taken together uh, is the best predictor of Trump support, which is fascinating. It's also kind of ironic considering if you had to think of a candidate best described by the word good manners or <laughs> well-behaved, well-behaved, I'm not sure – I'm just going to say I'm not sure I think that Trump would be that person. You know, but uh, the point here is not that he is the well-behaved True. one. It's that he would get Putin to be well-behaved. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess you're right. You're He's right. going to make ISIS be well-behaved. I know, but still there's something about – there's something about like being – you know, that that – prioritizing being well-behaved and having good manners with someone who calls people pigs and losers. Like, to me, I find a well, little rich. But. He's he's a, a mystery wrapped in an enigma, that <laughs> Trump is. So we may never, never know. Yeah. 
Um, and then, you know, sort of last but not least, uh, the big question that keeps me up at night is, is this whole uh, circus on my side of the aisle destroying my party's chance of ever winning elections again? Sorry, that was a little dark. Um, I promise everything's fine. I'm super happy. Yay, election. But really, um, you know, how much has the GOP's presidential nominating contest hurt the party? Um, and, you know, they asked people, has this made you feel more or less positive about the GOP. And overall, 42% of all voters say the race has made them feel less favorable about the Republican Party versus 19% who are more favorable. Um, I'm less interested in overall numbers on questions like that, though, because you wind up with a ton of Democrats who like will always say that they, you know, in the same way that Republicans would do the same thing. Yeah. So the independent number is the one that I think is fascinating. Well, the independent number and the whites number are the two that stuck out to me. So you have 32% of independents who say this primary has made them less favorable to the GOP, 12% who say it's made them more favorable. Among whites, which again, remember, Trump is very into this, like, he plays this kind of racial and ethnic politics. And there's this big debate on the right about, well, if you just goose your numbers with white voters, then can that make up for the poor performance among African-American and Latino, et cetera? Among the whites that responded to this survey, 40 percent said they were less favorable to the GOP um, and 22 percent more favorable. And even a quarter of Republican primary voters have a less favorable view of the party due to this whole nominating process. Um, well, 33 percent who say they have a more favorable view. Right. Um, and it's not specifying Trump specifically in the question. So they could be talking about. Something bigger or right. Or I don't think Trump's being treated fairly. Right. And the other thing I don't like the undercard debates or, you know. Yeah. And they they also asked this of what people thought about the Democratic Party. And there were no groups. The only groups, African-Americans and Latinos, said they were more favorable to the Democratic Party as a result of this primary. Independents still 18 percent less favorable, 14 percent more favorable. So pretty split. I mean, certainly much more split than you see with their impressions of the Republican primary. Right. Especially interesting, given that there has been coverage about the Democratic nominating process, or at least like what's been going on on the Democratic. The inside baseball. Is Debbie Wasserman Schultz leading a conspiracy to keep the Bernie, keep people from feeling the burn? Right. I mean, you know, you hear all that coverage, but that's not really. Who locked Martin O'Malley in a cage? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry. And that's not really borne out. Worries about that don't seem to be borne out by the data. At least judging by this. I mean, the other flip side of this is can people really self-report how it makes them feel about the party and, you know, will this matter? Is it it actually – you know, the way you would – the way you would measure this would not be to ask someone, did your mind change, but rather to ask them once and then ask them later and see if their mind changed. So really this isn't the best way to measure it, but, you know, sort of in the absence of any other tools or like a really cool longitudinal panel study, this is what we have. Yep, exactly. Okay, so next up, we're going to talk to Carl Bialik from the uh, great institution 538, who talks all about their various forecasting models, the little 538 history, and why it's important to study pollsters. Carl, we're so excited to have you. And for folks who have listened to us talk about your work before, we want to get this one thing off the table. How do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> uh, great question. <laughs> It's Bialik. Ah, so, we were right. So okay, we were good. 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 <laughs> yes, you, you are the, the very, the 1%. Uh, 
(laughs) Finally, I finally made it. I feel rich on the inside. (laughs) (laughs) So, Carl, you are with a a little outlet called 538, um, all spelled out. And, you know, a lot of the political insiders who listen to the show are going to be familiar with 538, but not everybody. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what 538 is and and, uh, your role in, uh, in covering politics as well as other topics? So 538 started in 2008. Nate Silver was forecasting the primaries and then later the general election. And he was doing that somewhat independently and then later took the site to the New York Times, forecast the 2012 election quite successfully again. And then in 2013, uh, he joined forces with ESPN. And so the site broadened its mission. So initially it was him, then him and Micah Cohen, uh, who was at the New York Times and joined him at ESPN. And now we're a staff of over two dozen and we have many of our contributors and we're still covering elections and polling and forecasting. We just released last week our forecast for Iowa and for New Hampshire and with other states to come. But we also do a lot more than politics. Uh, We're owned by ESPN, so we do a lot of sports and we do economics and culture and science. So we have a a lot of contest. Sorry uh, to interrupt. <laughs> that's no, one of the first things that comes I think to that, mind is the burrito bracket. <laughs> yeah, and and I think it's a good example because there's elements of culture and science and and economics. Well, no, it was really just for fun because Nate likes burritos. And what was the burrito was that won? I don't remember. La Taqueria in San Francisco. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's and good. It, it's. I think it was a really good example of the sort of approach that we take being able to be applied to a lot of things. Like if you ever read his intro post for that project, it's pretty sophisticated data methodology to just try to find the best burrito. And I say just, but for some people, including Nate and me, that's that's a great quest. Uh, you know, I was on a panel a couple of days ago with Kevin Merida, who is uh, at ESPN and was at the Post before that. And um, we were talking backstage, like, wh- you know, what are some of the topics of the panel? Maybe we should talk about social media or how people get their news. And I said, hey, we could talk about podcasts like you guys have podcasts. And, you know, there's the pollsters, which is kind of like going up to Jose Andres, who's the local D.C. celebrity chef. And say, I cook food, too. Right. I have a lemonade. Right. I have a lemonade stand. We're like in the same industry. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and he was a good sport about that. <laughs> um, but so you guys have now, as I mentioned, have a lot of podcasts, right? So there's a 538 podcast and there's a great new episode about political data. That's your newest episode of What's the Point? But you're also doing politics in addition to a variety of very popular sports ones, correct? Yeah, we have a podcast called Hot Takedown, which takes down hot takes in sports or sometimes backs them up, but using data. And then Jody Evergan has What's the Point, which is the one you referenced that just did one on political data and is doing a second episode in the series this week on that same topic. So those are two longest running, and this is we're still just in our first 12 months, I think, of podcasting. So it's still relatively new for us. But we're adding a third. Uh, Jody has piloted with our politics people a politics podcast, which is going to launch pretty soon. But already there have been a few episodes, including one from Iowa last week. You've been tracking the industry by talking to pollsters and surveying them about what they think, where they think the uh, the future of the industry is going. It's something we talk about a lot on the show. Tell us a little bit about what you found. So the idea was that we write about 
polling and pollsters all the time. We use polls to forecast races. We rate pollsters based on how close their polling results are to what actually happens in the elections and also on their transparency and their methodology. And I thought we should hear from the people behind the polls as well and hear what they're thinking, why they're doing what they're doing, where they see the industry heading, what are some of the challenges and successes. So for the 2014 cycle, I started doing regular polls of pollsters. And I should explain that these are people who are working for firms or universities or nonprofits that are producing public election polls. And that was a decision based mainly on just uh, who, who we were tracking and who, who we had information about. And so the questions are often geared to election polling, but they also cover much broader areas about the industry, like adjusting for the fact that fewer and fewer people answer their phones, that more people use cell phones, that some of the industry is going online. So uh, this was a series in and around the 2014 election of about four or five. And then uh, a few weeks ago, we revived it around the 2016 cycle and hope to do more of these going forward. Uh, there's so much attention on the polls around the primaries. There's going to be more around the general election. And yeah, we just wanted to to hear what pollsters are thinking and what they're saying. Do you worry that, and this is something that we've talked about and we've had others talk about, that the focus on publicly released polls gives a different sense of what's going on in the race or a different sense of the polling industry if you're just looking at a publicly released horse race question than all the other polling that goes on for politics, all the other internal candidate work, nonprofit advocacy work, uh, all the all the things that lead up to the horse race, the images and dimension, image dimensions and messages and that sort of thing. Um, what's your take on that? I think it's a great point. I think it's one I hadn't thought about much before hearing from you on Twitter, but you know I think we we were thinking in terms of polls as a very as a very clear subset of polling, the ones that make headlines. But as you point out, there are many other types of polls that have enormous influence, even if people don't know about them. I, I could sort of see it cutting both ways. You could make the case, well, these are the people who are doing the polls that most of our readers would know about and be reacting to. On the other hand, those are the ones we probably already know the most about. So maybe it's most interesting to use this format to talk to people who are doing things that our readers don't know as much about, but which affect them just as much or more. What did pollsters say they were were worried about? Were they optimistic about the future of the industry? We had Scott Keeter on from Pew on a recent episode, and he was very optimistic of of where polling was headed. We've had other folks on the on the show like Chuck Todd who were not as optimistic about the industry. I mean, what did the pollsters you talked to think? I think it was about as mixed as your guests have been. For one thing, there's a split between what they thought everyone else thought of the industry and what they thought of the industry. So I think they were pretty much unanimous that their reputation has gone down. But it's it's been a very contentious cycle, and polling has been front and center. And Trump, in particular, who's been by far the most covered candidate, talks constantly about polling and will often speak negatively of polls that reflect negatively on him and his standing. So it's it's natural that the reputation has taken a hit because of, of this kind of coverage and discourse from candidates. But I think in terms of where the industry actually is, I think a lot of people are pleasantly surprised that if they had been asked maybe 10 or 20 years ago, how would you be able to do what you're doing with 
a much lower response rate, I think a lot of them would have said, well, we, we wouldn't. We'd be in a lot of trouble. And they're still consistently, these public pollsters, putting out polls that are doing a decent job. There have been some high-profile misses recently, but also some reasonably good results. And also, one one thing I really liked about the answers I got to this last poll were people talking about the really innovative ways they're trying to adapt to the future, trying to use new methods to to test new mediums, but also to make sure that they're using the best possible mix of data they can, like using voter data. And you know, one response I got, which I think was really wise, was the most important thing now at polling is at, in the polling industry for a pollster is to have really good people who are thinking through all all the problems in the best possible way, using the best possible data, that that matters now more than how many people you're contacting and how you're contacting them. So I think hopefully there are mechanisms in place so that these best firms with the best practices and the best people are the ones that get that attention and get business and rise to the top. So one of the questions we always like to ask people when they come on the show who you know work in this industry in some capacity is how did you fall into this? I mean, what in the what brought you to the world of kind of data journalism? I was, have been interested in math and numbers since I was a kid, and I majored in math and physics at college, and so it was always interesting for me to try to figure out how to use that interest in journalism and. One of my editors at my previous employer, Wall Street Journal, had the idea of a column that would regularly look at numbers in the news and it had a very gendered title, which I didn't like, Numbers Guy. Since I've left, it's called just Numbers, which is probably better. And it had such a broad scope that inevitably during elections, polling numbers were going to be part of what I was writing about. So I didn't know that much about polling, but I learned a lot over the course of writing that column for about nine years. And until then, I knew, I think, mostly what informed newspaper readers know, just that these polls happen and then numbers come out of them and there's some margin of error, whatever that means. But, you know, writing that column during elections and talking to pollsters and people writing about the industry, like uh, mystery pollsters now at SurveyMonkey, that was was a really good way to to understand more at a time when the industry was changing so much. I, I was writing back when most pollsters weren't calling cell phones and having the debate about whether they needed to and debates about IVR and about whether online polling could ever, could ever be meaningful at all. And here we are and a lot of the, the polls are being done online. So it's, it's, it's become something personally fascinating to me coming from a place where I knew almost nothing about it. Um, well, thank you so much, Carl. How can people find you or learn more about you and your work? Sure. Well, 538.com, you have to write the whole thing out because the 538, the numbers is taken. So 538.com is where I and my colleagues do our work and publish it. And then I'm on Twitter at Carl Bialik. And you can pronounce it wrong, but spell it right and you'll still find me. Okay. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Carl. We really appreciate it. And you were a good sport with us uh, teasing you a little bit in your absence a couple weeks ago. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) No problem. Thanks for having me.
Okay, well, that was great talking to Carl Bialik from 538, and uh, you should definitely check out uh, the website and all the podcasts that they are putting out. They have a politics podcast coming out. So as far as we know, we're still the only polling podcast. So there is more broadly politics. We are But still, we welcome the competition. We welcome the competition. Bring it. Bring it. <laughs> uh, so, okay, as we wrap up the show, um, you know, a few last final little hits and tidbits. Uh, in the U.K., you know, we've, again, we, we love seeing what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic. A few weeks ago, we talked about YouGov's postmortem, figuring out what they as an individual pollster um, got right wrong in the uh, UK election. We now have the British Polling Council. Um, they, it, I don't think it's exactly the same thing as like an APOR, but for Britain, because I think it's mostly focused on public pollsters. It's at organizations that release polls. Um, but they did their own sort of postmortem and, and found somewhat similar things that the problems, the reason why the polls were wrong wasn't because a bunch of people changed their minds. It wasn't some late breaking, whatever. It wasn't necessarily because people were, you know, lying or saying it was because they were just sampling the wrong people that online polls were missing some of the over 70 year old voters, that the younger voters that they were reaching via online polls were much more likely to be um, engaged than your average young voter. And so, you know, it, it wound up sort of misrepresenting the impact that the youth vote would have. And this was the thing I thought was the, the best, um, busy voters. So they had uh, not all of their studies were online or even phone. They had one called the Face-to-Face British Social Attitudes Study. And they found that labor was six points ahead among respondents who answered the door the first time, while Tories were ahead among interviewees who required between three and six home visits to get the survey done. Different definition of shy Tory, perhaps. Right. So even after adjusting for social class and age, easy-to-reach voters were less conservative than the busy voters that pollsters had to work hard to chase. So, you know, this is why Tories just got stuff going on. You know? They're not they, answering the door. That's right. That's right. They got to go to the you. pub. They got to go to the gym, whatever they have to they do. They got to go be capitalists. They got to make that money. <laughs> now, you know, this is interesting because you'll often hear people complain about um, uh, overnight polling. Why is overnight polling good, bad? You know, the insta poll kind of concern. Um, sometimes that's all you have when you're trying to measure something that just happened. That's the best measurement. But methodologically, if you are doing internal work, private work for a candidate or organization, you want to do what we call callbacks. You want to not just get the people who are easy to reach the first time you call, but find them another time, call them a couple times, try them at six, try them at 830, call them on a Tuesday, call them on a Sunday afternoon. So you give uh, busier people more opportunities to be in your sample frame because they may be different in some way than less busy people who are are easier to get on the phone. So that seems it turns out to be true when you look at uh, these in-person calls too. And what's interesting, again, this goes back to the point, you know, that we've talked about now a few times on this episode is making sure you know who is going to turn out and you are accounting for all the, you know, your sample frame is flexible enough to include all the different kinds of people who may turn out and how that may change from different populations. That's the essential way to predict it rather than everybody changes their mind at the last second, which happens sometimes. Some people do, but that's usually not going to explain a gigantic shift in from the polls a couple days out to mm-hmm. election day. The other thing that stuck out to me about this was less about polling methodology and more about just sort of the ins and outs of British politics. So the Conservative Party in the UK has been sort of trying to undergo this rebranding effort, like sort of what 
some of us on the Republican Party wish the Republican Party would do. Now, in terms of what else is going on uh, around the world, Canada, remember, we have tons of Canadian listeners. Uh, folks, ladies on the left here swooned when the new Trudeau administration oh, God. had 50 percent of their cabinet to be women. And polls show that oh, people... I, I was saying, oh, God, at the swoon, <laughs> not the policy part. I was political like, swoon, oh, political swoon. No, now we're swooning over Justin Trudeau. It's a political swoon. Just, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, version of like free range eggs at the NPR <laughs> <laughs> offices. <laughs> That's sort of equivalent. And uh, people seem to, you know, people say, hey, it's a great idea. Three fourths of Canadians said it's a great idea to split your cabinet 50-50 in terms of gender. Uh, they, did, they, of course, broke this uh, out by demographics. And there was one group that said, you know, I don't really think that was a good idea. And that was conservative men. So they haven't gotten the rebranding memo, I guess, that's going on in the UK or that was released here, but maybe not quite going on here either. But that's, I think, pretty dramatic difference. You had 60% of conservative men saying, no, that was actually a bad idea. Everybody I wonder if part of it is because the question specifically names Justin Trudeau. And, and so in the same way that in the U.S., if you were like, do you support President Obama's policy to give every child a puppy and a rainbow? Like you would find 50 percent of Republicans going, no, not a fan. Yeah. Because you said the word Obama. In it. Yeah. Like true. I'm not interested. So, I, you know, maybe they're not actually 60 percent of conservative men in Canada are like misogynist in some way. Maybe they're just like, uh, Justin Trudeau, I roll. Right. Perhaps. And, and no matter what the policy was. That's they're not swooning. Alternative. They're definitely not swooning. They're not swooning. You know, 60% looms large in another poll on gender, and that's called, catchily, I guess, the Elephant in the Valley poll done of women in tech in the Bay Area. 60% said that they had experienced unwanted sexual advances. Um, one person said, I don't know if this is part of the 60% that she received a mixtape, a mixtape for the young youngsters among you back in the olden times. You had to use a cassette tape and you had to edit it. You know, you had to have two cassette tape, a two tape deck where you could record and play and record in the same deck. Um, this was all before people, I guess they don't do that anymore. <laughs> before we invented fire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. So that's what that now is. You can send someone a Spotify playlist. Yes, exactly. You can right. still do it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I was going to say make CDs, but even that is not a thing anymore. So before all of that, you made a mixtape, and I guess that's what happened to one of the <laughs> women. And then last bit of polling news. Um, what percent, I guess we have time for Ask a Millennial. Ask a Millennial. Kristen, oh what percent of college grads Co recent college grads think that Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court. One out of ten. <laughs> Good job, gang. Um, now they don't say Judge Judy; they say Judith Scheinlin or whatever her last name is. So, yeah, it's that's still like. And John Kerry is one of the answer categories. Also, and five percent John said John Kerry was on the Supreme Court. So that's fifteen percent who said. Yeah, this does not outrage me about the state of Malaya. I'm frankly surprised it isn't a little bit higher. <laughs> but no, I I'm serious because it's – when you ask a question like that, I mean it's it, – it, I don't – I think it's fine that most Americans can't name all nine Supreme Court justices. Like I don't think that that's hugely detrimental to democracy or the functioning of our country. 
Yeah, I I mean, I hear you with some of these, right? I guess they had like, how do you ratify a new amendment? And a lot of people got that wrong. And that didn't, I, I wasn't as outraged by that. But they also had a question, which I don't have here, but a lot of people got wrong. Like, what's the length of a term, a Senate term or, you know, yeah. that, that I feel like you should get, that I feel you should know. I, I think so. I think so. But but when you're asking people, is Judge Judy on the Supreme Court, you're almost trying to trick them into getting. And, and so the fact that you only trick 10 percent of people. I don't know. Maybe I'm just defending college students here, but like, that's not so bad. So you see the glasses 10 percent full. I do. I sure do. I see the glasses 90 percent full. Right. Excellent. OK. So our key findings, just like wildly fluctuating snow predictions, we have wildly fluctuating Iowa and New Hampshire predictions. So get your snacks ready. Hunker down for the long winter. Um, if I'm teaching my children good manners, which I'm not always doing, I guess, does that mean they're going to be future Trump supporters? This is a new thing to keep me up at night. <laughs> and if my children don't become tech zillionaires, maybe they should move to Canada instead, where they can be on the cabinet. Um, now, who needs RBG when you have Judge JS and I would imagine that Judge Judy probably gets better ratings in demo than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters. You can find us individually at, at Margie O'Mero and at K. Soltis Anderson. We're at thepolsters.com where each week you can go through and look at our show notes, see what we discussed. Um, also follow us on Facebook where we post links to stories that we find interesting throughout the week and are considering discussing on the show. And don't forget you can subscribe to us on whichever podcatcher you choose, iTunes, Stitcher, and the like. Just make sure if you've not written a review yet that you go ahead and do so. Great. Thanks. Have a good week.